See you around, Hen. There are no other cars on the road and I watch her disappear down the slope towards the beach, her gait loose and comfortable, like she walks to music. Somewhere out in the darkness I can hear the waves breaking against the bass rock, though I cannot see it. and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, if you're anything like me, you are very keenly already compiling your summer to-be-read list, a big stack of books to get you through this summer, whatever's happening in your life. I personally am really looking for some books that are going to give me some atmosphere to make me feel like I'm somewhere else, even when I'm definitely still in my armchair, the place that I've been since March. Now, one of the last booksellers I visited before lockdown was Evie Wilde. Evie is an incredible writer who is also a bookseller, which I think is the optimum combination to produce a work of art. And The Bass Rock is a great example of that. It's an incredibly atmospheric book set in Scotland, following three women over three different timelines. Let me read the blurb for you here. Surging out to sea, the Bass Rock has for centuries watched over the lives that pass under its shadow in the Scottish mainland. And across the centuries, the fates of three women are linked to this place and to each other. In the 1700s, Sarah, accused of being a witch, flees for her life. In the aftermath of the Second World War, Ruth navigates a new house, a new husband and the strange waters of the local community. Six decades later, the house stands empty. Viv mourning the death of her father, catalogues Ruth's belongings and discovers her place in the past and perhaps a way forward. Doesn't that sound absolutely bloody wonderful? I managed to dig out a little extract to share with you guys uh, right here on the podcast, which I'm really excited to play for you. This is the very beginning of the audiobook. So wherever you are, let's go to Scotland. The small supermarket in Musselburgh is open until 10pm and the staff look offended by me as I walk in at 9.35. I imagine how I must appear after eight hours in the car. I splash my face with water in a service station near Durham and my hair has dried strangely. I am unkempt enough to present as a shoplifter. I have parked towards the back of the supermarket by the cash machines to remind myself to get some on the way out because the shops nearer the house prefer not to accept cards. I spend a long time at the herbs. There's fresh ginger and the chilies, and I wonder how I would go about making something with them. I put some lemon thyme in my trolley instead. Perhaps I will roast a chicken tomorrow, or a couple of thighs. I'm not a good cook. I like thighs because when I forget them, they don't dry out. I always overdo it on the fruit but it's hard not to feel excited. They all have different colours of plums from Kenya. Yellow, orange, purple, red and black. And I put a carton of each in my trolley. That's 30 plums for me to eat in a week, which is only a little over four a day and feels like something I could accomplish. Two in the morning, two at night. If I were the kind of person who could preserve things, I'd preserve a jar of each variety and just have them to look at. But they would grow a film of mould, like the time I made chilli olive oil and the bottle went black. I am missing some fundamental element of preservation. I suspect it's cleanliness. I move on, 
and though I try to think of something new and interesting to cook, by the time I get to the frozen aisle, I have spaghetti, tinned tomatoes and tinned clams, a box of eggs I will never use, and some sliced brown bread and the herbs. None of it I want to eat tonight. But it is at least food that suggests a certain seriousness. I am the sort of woman who is here to work, who is doing her family a favour, not the other way round. I am no longer the person who failed every day last June to get out of bed before midday, who stopped going to work and seeing her friends and answering the phone and had to be driven by her sister to the hospital when the breath stopped coming in and going out and who could only make one long, lowing noise. I did not spend seven days in a room with no edges and a sign on the door that said, no cutlery whatsoever, including teaspoons. The tannoy announces that the store will be closing in five minutes, and it feels like a message to me in particular. There is a woman in the frozen aisle, which I am only in because it marks the completion of my shopping trip. She has no trolley or basket even, She's looking at the chalk ices. She picks out a box of four expensive mint ones that have a woman's mouth, large and rude on the front, cracking through the chocolate. She has an unlit cigarette in her mouth, ready to go, big curly hair that has been teased and sprayed, and she's wearing pink lipstick. She smiles at me and says, Late night ice cream. I feel so flustered I go red, and then I laugh too loudly and just say, Plums. She smiles back and turns to leave. I'll be hearing myself saying plums all night. At the end of the frozen aisle is a display of Mr Freeze's jubbly orange lollies. When we were kids, Dad in his best moods, when he wanted nothing more than to make Catherine and I laugh, would sing a song from the advert that was on the TV when he was young. Lovely jubbly, lovely jubbly orange drink. Why that was the thing that made us laugh the most is hard to pinpoint, but I think it had more to do with him wanting us to laugh than the song itself. Even so, I am standing still because, like so many small things discovered every day, I am faced with never hearing that song in his voice again. I have forgotten the fucking chicken thighs, and so I speed back to the meat fridge and all the nice chicken is gone. There's only the stuff that has had an awful life and taste of fish. I put a tin of sardines in my trolley, put the herbs back on the shelf, pre-sliced Swiss cheese, a bar of chocolate and some celery, just for show. There is only one till left open. A small queue of us trying to project that shopping this late is not usual for us. I flick through a magazine. There's a moody image of a man thumbing his upper lip to show off either his cufflinks or his watch. He wrinkles his forehead in a way that is supposed to be sexy, and then, opposite him, a pale stick of a girl with hair parted down the middle, lips painted into a red bow, a puppet at rest. She stares off into the distance, sad. She's there to be looked at by the man with the cufflinks and the wrinkled brow, but she is not there to look back. My mother's voice in my head, why do all these women want to look like deer in the headlights? Why do all these men want to look like they laugh too loudly in public? I am glad that the time spent thinking about how other people will respond or not respond to my body and face has passed. I'm older than my mother somehow, 
because at least she participated in her life at my age. She had a husband and children and then lost part of that and now lives as it seems she was always meant to, alone and with her work. She's been working on poisonous fungi of France for nine months now. The only framed picture in my flat is one she gave me as a moving-in present three years ago, a fly agaric with a stag beetle meandering past it for scale. It leans unhung in my bedroom. There is probably a house spider nestling behind it. My mother has found, being alone, a new beginning. Her house is tidy. She eats what she wants, when she wants. Nothing for a day, then a dressed crab at eleven at night, or a bowl of frozen peas uncooked, which she eats like peanuts for breakfast. I admire the singleness that she has embraced since Dad died. I think I could aspire to that, but without having to be widowed first. Sometimes, though, it would be nice to fuck and to be fucked. I look now and again online at single men and women, older than me. I always go older. Not because I am looking for someone mature or experienced, but because the young have filters on their profiles to get rid of the elderly, which are close to 40, I have become all of a sudden. There have been a few matches. Stephen from Haringey, 56. Philip from Clapton, 49. Isabella from Hampstead, 62. And if they don't have filters, like Marco, Tooting, 36, it is possibly because of some sort of fetish. My phone was low on memory, and so I deleted the app. I did it while my sister watched, so that she could throw back her head and cluck in an exasperated way. The woman at the till says, Good evening, as if she's booking me in at a police station. I am walking to my car with my small bag of food when I see the woman with the ice creams is there, just outside the sliding doors. She's eating one and drumming her long fingernails on the packet with the other hand. My car is the only one in the car park. She must be waiting for someone to pick her up. I try not to catch her eye. Hey! she calls. I smile, but don't make eye contact. Is she going to try and engage me in conversation again? Should I explain the plums? Hey! she says again. Good to see you, Hen. How are you? She seems to think we know each other. Perhaps she wants money. Suddenly I feel very alone in the car park. The security guard has started to put the shutters down and I glance back at him, but he's not looking. Um, sorry, I'm not sure I know you, I say, and I start to walk quickly to the car. I won't get cash out tonight. Yes, she hisses, trotting to keep up with me. But pretend that you do. There's a man hiding behind your car. I stop and she bumps into me. I can't see anyone by the car from where we're standing, but the cash machines are lit brightly, which means everything around them is a deeper dark. I got you an ice cream, she says in the loud voice. She hands me one from her box. I take it automatically. What do we do? We should get the security guard. As I whisper, the light at the front of the supermarket goes out. I still don't see anyone there and have a sudden and bad feeling. Who goes shopping that late at night, no car, just to buy chalk ices? It's not normal behaviour. Get to your car, I think. Shake this woman off, give back her ice cream, which is making the whole situation much more difficult to navigate, physically and mentally. I push the button to pop open my boot, and the woman says, 
It's been so long. I haven't seen you since school. What have you been up to? I open my mouth in confusion, and as I fumble for an answer, remembering, as I do, that it doesn't matter, we didn't go to school together, a figure rises up out of the dark from the passenger side of my car. And all I can see is that his hand is in the pocket of his jacket, and he is wearing dark clothes and is away from us quickly without running. I stand there watching him go, my heart beating in my throat. I have the terrible feeling that I might cry. Feckin' creep, she says, and opens another ice cream. Should we tell someone, I say. Tell them what? There's a man being creepy. There are men being creepy all over the place, hen, believe me. Um, look, thanks so much. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know what was going on. Hey, no drama, she says. Here's your ice cream back. I say, ha, she says, you keep it, hen. I've got two more right here. She bites into the new one and the chocolate cracks loudly. So take care, she says, and turns to walk down the pathway towards the main road. Wait, what if he comes back? I say, can I give you a lift somewhere? It is unlike me to offer a lift at any time of the day, let alone in the dark to a complete stranger. But it's out of my mouth before I can stop it. The woman turns round, smiles. You know what? That'd be great. Inside the car, I wonder where I'm going. You mind? She asks, gesturing to the ice cream. Not at all. We drive out of the car park and up the hill. I always have to have ice cream when I'm stoned, you know? She directs me and tells me where she is from, and I forget immediately what she says. It's pretty shitty, she says but then I'm from a pretty shitty part of it. I nod. I can't think of a single question. There are no street lamps as we head towards the coast, and my high beams haven't worked in years. I expect to see something slinking after us, its eyes lit red in the headlights. She seems completely unaffected by the incident in the car park. I feel as homesick as an eleven-year-old. What do you do? she asks. Freelance stuff. I try to make cleaning out my great-aunt and grandmother's house sound like a job. Archival stuff, mostly. I'm just up for the weekends, about to start a new project. I clear my throat for a long time. Cool, she says. Art. Yes, and other stuff. I have said stuff too many times. That's cool. I like art, me. There is a long, long silence. How did you get into that? I did my degree in history of art, which is almost true. I did the first year anyway. And it was so long ago that any influence it might have had on the direction my life has gone in feels only tangential. My mother's a botanical artist, so that sort of thing is in the family. Except that it's not really. I almost tell her that my father has just died to try and gain some ground, as though it happened that morning, and actually it's incredible that I'm buggering on but no one accepts that now that two years have passed. It's time to move on. They may not say it, but you see it on their faces. Like plants and that. Yes, well, fungi, really. Oh, aye, she says, and then the silence is back. I realise too late that I should ask what she does. The silence has ended that strand of conversation. A light rain begins to fall. I'm Maggie. Not short for anything, just Maggie. 
she says. Viv for Vivian. I've never met a Vivian before, she says, like it genuinely surprises her. I feel the need to elaborate. My mother said she liked the name because it sounds sharp. Ha, she says. My mother thought Maggie sounded like a fluffy chick. I have nowhere to go, nothing to say. I wish I could stop bringing up my mother. On the coastal road by the golf course, she tells me to stop. I walk from here, nice stroll under the stars. Are you sure? She puts out her hand and we shake like we've completed some sort of business. See you around, hen. There are no other cars on the road and I watch her disappear down the slope towards the beach, her gait loose and comfortable, like she walks to music. Somewhere out in the darkness I can hear the waves breaking against the bass rock, though I cannot see it. 2. At the butcher's, Ruth bought stewing steak. She planned to make a pie. She'd been able to smell all day the meat pudding Betty had left for them. Popular, it seemed, in Scotland, it had appeared insidiously on her dinner table at least four times in the five weeks since they'd arrived. It made the spirits sink in the same way that fish pie had back home. The thought of it sitting in its steamer turned Ruth's stomach. She would make a basic steak pie with potatoes and runner beans. One of the few supper recipes that she kept in the back of her appointments diary. Perhaps she would also make a Victoria sponge for the boys. Would they like that? Or would it seem like a bribe? It was, she decided, possible to think too much about this sort of thing. The day was bright with the remnants of late summer. Too cold not to wear a hat, but the sun warmed her back so much that she felt rather damp by the time she had walked the length of the high street. And so she stood a while on the concrete steps of the outdoor pool, watching the swimmers, their limbs glowing white under the water. One woman moved so slowly there seemed barely any momentum. She ducked her floral-capped head under the water and came up, spraying wet breath. Other swimmers, more dedicated to movement, swam around her. She's enjoying being weightless, thought Ruth. She doesn't care about going forward. A baby gull stood hunched on the top step, watching the swimmers too. It cried and paddled its feet in disgust. Ruth looked at it. They do it for fun, she told it, and it angled its head to give her the benefit of one marble black eye. At the post office was a letter from Alice. Ruth bought a postcard of the pool and the pavilion with the steep side of the law looking unfriendly behind it. When she'd first seen it, the severity of its incline had felt unnatural, and the whalebones on top seemed signifiers of some kind of awful paganism. But as she had become used to it, she thought more about the people who carried the bones up there, and what a feeling, in the end, of triumph they must have felt each day, seeing them up there glinting in the daylight. In the postcard, however, the law was badly served and lumpen in black and white, the whale bones on top of the hill barely visible. Despite this, she liked the idea of being able to place a cross on the window she was sitting beside as she wrote it. They recognised her at the pavilion by now, and the serving girl nodded hello and escorted her to a table which had a view of the pool.
She watched for the floating woman, but she was gone, or perhaps sunk. There was still the unmistakable glance here and there of ladies wondering about her. It wouldn't be long, she knew, before she would have to make allies, or else risk appearing aloof. But she had always been slow to warm up, and she viewed befriending Betty, the housemaid, as the more urgent task, as Peter had several dozen complaints about her cooking, which would have to be handled in a delicate way. Alice's stationery was tasteful and curated, a pattern of willow on the lining of the envelope, white, crisp writing paper with an ornate watermark. Letters from Alice were small parcels to be unwrapped and to keep and look at for years to come. Surreptitiously, after she'd given her order, a pot of tea in a silver teapot and a finger of shortbread, she sniffed the envelope. It could have been Alice's expensive hand cream, but it could just as easily have been that she had perfumed the letter with the coral and brass atomizer that sat on her desk. Ruth pictured her wearing a gossamer robe and heels while she wrote. The content, however, did not live up to the packaging. Darling Puss, such bad luck. Dear old Ludwig is dead. Probably rat poison, though of course he was ancient and, poor thing, almost completely blind last I saw him. Spoke to father at the weekend, who is beside himself. They didn't want to bother you with the news. Mother thinks you're dealing with enough death in your marriage at the moment, at which I roll my eyes on your behalf. I knew you'd want to know. Father wants a grave marker, but they are at loggerheads about what to put on the stone. Mother is for Albert. Father stamps his foot and shouts that the war is over, and that he shall bury his friend under his proper name. Mother fears vandals, though I'm not sure how many of those live in much Haddam. Antony, of course, would have whisked the body away for burial at sea. Anyway, so sorry to be the bearer of sad news, puss. Do hope you keep well in all other ways. Mark my fifth anniversary this weekend. Can you even conceive of it? Wish you could be here. Have a wee dram for us. London as hell. All my love, Alice. Ruth refolded the letter and carefully housed it back in its envelope. She pressed it flat on the white linen tablecloth and weighed it down with the salt cellar. Out of the window she looked past the pool and the harbour and there in the dark water she noted the floral swimming cap again, bobbing out in the open sea this time. Or perhaps it was just a sun-pinked buoy. On clear days like these, the bass rock looked close enough to swim around, though she had received a humorless lecture from more than one local for exclaiming this in public. She drank her tea without milk and slipped the shortbread into her pocket so as not to draw attention to herself as a wastrel. She counted out money, leaving extra to make up for going without saying goodbye and thank you. She tied her red handkerchief over her hair as she went, the clouds outside threatening spit. She couldn't bring herself to get back into her overcoat. The gentle skit of the harbour boats and their sails connecting with their masts was louder than it had been earlier. The wind had picked up. The cries of seagulls were incessant. On the way home, she stopped at the bridleway that veered off through the trees and towards the beach. Underneath the trees it was dark, and the wind didn't penetrate there. A pinprick of light, a dove, landed in the topmost branch of a fir, and the whole tree swayed like the dove was made of lead. Ruth left the stewing steak and her coat hanging over on the fence and walked towards the dove, feeling her heart throb. 
not out of fear, but as if it were being pulled towards the blackness of the trees out of her chest. Butterflies, white and blue and black, that should have been long dead, coasted the still air. Tell me something, she said to them, or to the dove, or to the trees, she wasn't sure. Tell me what to do next. Silence. Tell me something, at least. One tiny thing. But the dove didn't even cock his head to look at her, and the trees were just trees. She wondered if she had gone mad again, and started when she saw, curled in the bracken, a sleeping fox. Or perhaps it was dead. The earth around it was scuffed and disturbed, but no blood about him. His fur grey, not orange like the foxes at hunts or in pictures. Not dead. She caught the rise and fall of its little ribs. When she returned to the fence, the meat under her overcoat were gone. She felt foolish. The walk home was cold, the brightness of the afternoon had given way to the usual damp wind, and Ruth wrapped her arms around herself and walked as close to a run as she could. Her home was not yet a natural one. She still found, as she rounded the corner of the golf course and looked up at the house, that it didn't quite sit with her correctly as home. It felt like something belonging to a grand relative. It was too big, which she'd pointed out to Peter when they first saw it. It was too big for a couple and two children at boarding school. And the space! The servants' quarters were the same size, if not larger than Peter's cottage and dumber, and the empty ballroom with the unplayed piano, as big as the flat in Kensington she had rented before Peter came along. She'd meant to get the piano tuned, but there was no one in North Berwick who could do it. The man who used to service it had died, Betty had said, and so they'd really have to look to Edinburgh to find a new one. She'd blushed, rather, after saying, Well, who does everyone else use to tune their pianos? Betty had looked at her and she was aware, as she had been hundreds of times, how easily it could have been another woman standing there, doing the things she was doing. She wished she could say, Just tell me how she would do it, and I'll do it like her. She came in the back door so that she wouldn't be seen without her coat, and had to squeeze past the old retriever Bowie, who lay like a draught excluder against the door. She patted him in apology and walked briskly to the tall boy and turned out the pockets of her skirt for keys and change purse. Even through her gloves, her fingers were solid ice and she touched them for a moment to her face to warm them up. In the mirror, she noted how the skin of her cheeks reddened from the cold and the salt wind and her hair, once she unwrapped it from the scarf, had gone out of shape and no longer complemented her long face. In fact, she looked horsey and ruddy, she stabbed at her hair a little and applied a small amount of lipstick that she kept in the drawer of the tall boy, along with her cigarettes. She looked no better, though perhaps she looked a touch more purposeful. Peter and the boys were having late afternoon tea in the kitchen. On the counter, a large Victoria sponge, made the day before by Betty. She'd known, of course. Betty always made sure to tell Ruth what was available for the children. It had just slipped her mind. She would bake some apples then. Hardly the height of sophistication. Ugly to look at, but she felt the need to contribute in some small way to the evening meal, even if it was only to prolong it after the wretched meat pudding. Darling, Peter said, kissing her cheek, how was your morning? Fine, she said, leaving the letter from Alice in its envelope on the counter. 
Though the butcher was closed, I'm afraid. We'll have to eat what Betty's left us. How perfectly ghastly. Will you have some cake with us? He asked. It seems the one real talent Betty has. We ought to make the most of it. Oh, stop it, darling. We're just not yet used to Scottish food. They have different traditions up here, she said, pouring herself a glass of water to quell the thought of dinner. You would say that. You're afraid of her. Peter made a face at the boys. Michael laughed, but Christopher had recently become too mature to. She smoothed down her jumper over the waistband of her skirt. She felt a little sick. You know perfectly well that's absolute tripe, and so I shall ignore you. She addressed the boys. And how was your day? Michael, with his mouth full. We saw a shark. Ruth flicked her eyes to Peter's. He's quite right. It washed up on Millsy Bay. Poor creature must have got stuck when the tide went out. It was dead, said Michael. Big, was it? Ruth poured another glass of water, the first being rather too tepid and not having the calming effect on her stomach she had hoped for. Very, said Peter. We asked the fisherman what kind of shark it was, and he said a basking shark. It was the most Christopher had spoken to her since the move. She smiled. Did it have great big teeth? No, said Christopher, because it's not that kind of shark. Peter raised his eyebrows slightly over the boy's head, and Ruth sat down next to him. Perhaps I will have a small piece of cake after all, she said. And maybe sometime tomorrow you boys might show me where this shark is. It sounds absolutely disgusting. There was a seagull eating its eye, volunteered Michael. With the boys long in bed, Ruth climbed the staircase to the top of the house and quietly opened the door to their room. It would be Michael's first term boarding. He ought to have started in the previous year, but the raw chest had kept him at home. Christopher had been boarding these past two years since the wedding. Things were calmer now, by the sea. Like the wind swept certain moods and memories away with it, so one could be feeling rather black and then find oneself stood at the line of foam, left by the waves and wonder what the blackness had been about. She just needed to become an ounce more settled, get stuck into a project. Maybe the painting... There was the lightest sense of movement in the boys' room. She could see by moonlight the seal-like bumps of the sleeping children. The window was open a crack, a breeze moving through, delousing them of their bad dreams. She shut the door again quietly and stood outside their room, listening for a moment. Just the whisper of song came from the room, unfamiliar to her, and then gone. A trick of the golf course. It brought sounds unfiltered by trees from far away. Ruth left the landing and walked down the outer strip of the staircase so as not to make a noise. The staircase did creak terribly, if one was careless, and joined Peter in the drawing room for a nightcap. The boys were very happy today, he said, looking up from the drinks cabinet. He handed her a brandy, poured himself a whiskey. I think they're beginning to get the point of the place. I told you all they needed was some good sea air. He took a drink from his glass and heaved a loud sigh of contentment. It's done us all the world of good. Yes, you're right, she smiled, raised her glass to him and drank. The summer holidays had seemed like an eternity when they'd first arrived. Plenty of time to get settled, to all get used to this next part of their lives together, but still nothing felt settled. 
I'm certain that boarding will be fruitful for Michael. He's got a little too much of me in him sometimes, I'm afraid. Peter smiled back over his drink. How do you mean? That was The Bass Rock by Evie Wilde. If you like the sound of that extract, do think about picking up a copy either in audio or perhaps even ordering it from your local bookshop. We've got some links in the show notes if you'd like to have some help finding a good local bookshop to order from. As always, thank you so much for listening to The Vintage Podcast. We really appreciate it. Do come and pop on to our socials at Vintage Books on Twitter and Instagram if you'd like to keep chatting about books between episodes. I have been Lena Norms and until next time. Bye.